Section 37 of Volume 1A of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1A, Section 37. Chapter 8, Part 2. In England, with the mild character and advanced years of Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury, together with his merits in refusing to put the crown on the head of Eustace, son of Stephen, prevented Henry, during the lifetime of that primate, from taking any measures against the multiplied encroachments of the clergy. But after his death the king resolved to exert himself with more activity, and that he might be secure against any opposition, he advanced to that dignity, Becket, his chancellor, on whose compliance he thought he could entirely depend. Thomas, a Becket, the first man of English descent, who, since the Norman conquest, had, during the course of a whole century, risen to any considerable station, was born of reputable parents in the city of London, and being endowed both with industry and capacity, he early insinuated himself into the favor of Archbishop Theobald, and obtained from that prelate some preferments and offices. By their means he was enabled to travel for improvement to Italy, where he studied the civil and canon laws at Bologna, and on his return he appeared to have made such proficiency in knowledge that he was promoted by his patron to the Archdeanery of Canterbury, an office of considerable trust and profit. He was afterwards employed with success by Theobald in transacting business at Rome, and on Henry's accession he was recommended to that monarch as worthy of further preferment. Henry, who knew that Becket had been instrumental in supporting that resolution of the archbishop, which had tended so much to facilitate his own advancement to the throne, was already prepossessed in his favor, and finding on further acquaintance that his spirit and abilities entitled him to any trust, he soon promoted him to the dignity of chancellor, one of the first civil offices in the kingdom. The chancellor in that age, besides the custody of the great seal, had possession of all vacant prelacies and abbeys, he was the guardian of all such minors and pupils as were the king's tenants. All baronies which escheated to the crown were under his administration. He was entitled to a place in council, even though he were not particularly summoned, and as he exercised also the office of secretary of state, and it belonged to him to countersign all commissions, writs, and letters patent, he was a kind of prime minister, and was concerned in the dispatch of every business of importance. Besides exercising this high office, Becket, by the favor of the king or archbishop, was made provost of Beverley, dean of Hastings, and constable of the tower. He was put in possession of the honors of Eye and Berkham, large baronies that had escheated to the crown, and to complete his grandeur he was entrusted with the education of Prince Henry, the king's eldest son, and heir of the monarchy. The pomp of his retinue, the sumptuousness of his furniture, the luxury of his table, the munificence of his presence, corresponded to these great preferments, or rather exceeded anything that England had ever before seen in any subject. His historian and secretary, Fitzsimmons, mentions, among other particulars, that his apartments were, every day in winter, covered with clean straw or hay, and in summer with green rushes or boughs, lest the gentlemen who paid court to him, and who could not, by reason of their great number, find a place at table, should soil their fine clothes by sitting on a dirty floor. A great number of knights were retained in his service. The greatest barons were proud of being received at his table. 
his house was a place of education for the sons of the chief nobility and the king himself frequently vouchsafed to partake of his entertainments as his way of life was splendid and opulent his amusements and occupations were gay and partook of the cavalier spirit which as he had only taken deacon's orders he did not think unbefitting his character he employed himself at leisure hours in hunting hawking gaming and horsemanship he exposed his person in several military actions he carried over as his own charge seven hundred knights to attend the king in his wars at toulouse in the subsequent wars on the frontiers of normandy he maintained during forty days twelve hundred knights and four thousand of their train and in an embassy to france with which he was entrusted he astonished that court by the numbers and magnificence of his retinue john baldwin held the manor of Audarsby and aylesbury of the king in suckage by the service of finding litter for the king's bed in summer grass or herbs and two grey geese and in winter straw and three eels thrice in the year if the king should come thrice in the year to aylesbury henry besides committing all his more important business to becket's management honoured him with his friendship and intimacy and whenever he was disposed to relax himself by sports of any kind he admitted his chancellor to the party an instance of their familiarity as mentioned by fitzsimmons which as it shows the manners of the age it may not be improper to relate one day as the king and the chancellor were riding together in the streets of london they observed a beggar who was shivering with cold would it not be very praiseworthy said the king to give that poor man a warm coat in this severe season it would surely replied the chancellor and you do well sir in thinking of such good actions then he shall have one presently cried the king and seizing the skirt of the chancellor's coat which was scarlet and lined with ermine began to pull it violently the chancellor defended himself for some time and they had both of them liked to have tumbled off their horses in the street when becket after a vehement struggle let go his coat which the king bestowed on the beggar who being ignorant of the quality of the persons was not a little surprised at the present becket who by his complaisance and good humour had rendered himself agreeable and by his industry and abilities useful to his master appeared to him the fittest person for supplying the vacancy made by the death of theobald as he was well acquainted with the king's intentions of retrenching or rather confining within the ancient bounds all ecclesiastical privileges and always showed a ready disposition to comply with them henry who had never expected any resistance from that quarter immediately issued orders for electing him archbishop of canterbury but this resolution which was taken contrary to the opinion of matilda and many of the ministers drew after it very unhappy consequences and never prince of so great a penetration appeared in the issue to have so little understood the genius and character of his minister no sooner was becket installed in this high dignity which rendered him for life the second person in the kingdom with some pretensions of aspiring to be the first than he totally altered his demeanour and conduct and endeavoured to acquire the character of sanctity of which his former busy and ostentatious course of life might in the eyes of the people have naturally bereaved him without consulting the king he immediately returned into his hands the commission of chancellor pretending that he must thenceforth detach himself from secular affairs and be solely employed in the exercise of his spiritual function but in reality that he might break off all connections with henry and apprise him that becket as primate of england was now become entirely a new personage he maintained in his retinue and attendance alone his ancient pomp and lustre which was useful to strike the vulgar in his own person he affected the greatest austerity and most rigid mortification 
which he was sensible would have an equal or greater tendency to the same end. He wore sackcloth neath his skin, which, by his affected care to conceal it, was necessarily the more remarked by all the world. He changed it so seldom that it was filled with dirt and vermin. His usual diet was bread, his drink, water, which he even rendered further unpalatable by the mixture of unsavory herbs. He tore his back with the frequent discipline which he inflicted on it. He daily on his knees washed, in imitation of Christ, the feet of thirteen beggars, whom he afterwards dismissed with presents. He gained the affections of the monks by his frequent charities to the convents and hospitals. Every one who made profession of sanctity was admitted to his conversation, and returned full of panegyrics on the humility as well as on the piety and mortification of the holy primate. He seemed to be perpetually employed in reciting prayers and pious lectures, or in perusing religious discourses. His aspect wore the appearance of seriousness, and mental recollection, and secret devotion, and all men of penetration plainly saw that he was meditating some great design, and that the ambition and ostentation of his character had turned itself toward a new and more dangerous object. Becket waited not till Henry should commence those projects against the ecclesiastical power which he knew had been formed by the prince. He was himself the aggressor, and endeavored to overawe the king by the intrepidity and boldness of his enterprises. He summoned the Earl of Clare to surrender the barony of Tunbridge, which ever since the conquest had remained in the family of that nobleman, but which, as it had formerly belonged to the See of Canterbury, Becket pretended his predecessors were prohibited by the canons to alienate. The Earl of Clare, besides the luster which he derived from the greatness of his own birth and the extent of his possessions, was allied to all the principal families in the kingdom. His sister, who was a celebrated beauty, had further extended his credit among the nobility, and was even supposed to have gained the king's affections, and Becket could not better discover than by attacking so powerful an interest his resolution of maintaining with vigor the rights, real or pretended, of his see. William de Ensford, a military tenant of the crown, was patron of a living which belonged to a manor that held of the Archbishop of Canterbury. But Becket, without regard to William's right, presented, on a new and illegal pretext, one Lawrence to that living, who was violently expelled by Ensford. The primate, making himself, as was usual in spiritual courts, both judge and party, issued in a summary manner the sentence of excommunication against Ensford, who complained to the king that he, who held in capit of the crown, should, contrary to the practice established by the conqueror and maintained ever since by his successors, be subjected to that terrible sentence without the previous consent of the sovereign. Henry, who had now broken off all personal intercourse with Becket, sent him, by a messenger, his orders to absolve Ensford, but received for answer that it belonged not for the king to inform him whom he should absolve and whom excommunicate and it was not till after many remonstrances and menaces that becket though with the worst grace imaginable was reduced to comply with the royal mandate henry though he found himself thus grievously mistaken in the character of the person whom he had promoted to the primacy determined not to desist from his former intention of retrenching clerical usurpations he was entirely master of his extensive dominions. The prudence and vigor of his administration, attended with perpetual success, had raised his character above that of any of his predecessors. The papacy seemed to be weakened by a schism which divided all Europe, and he rightly judged that if the present favorable opportunity were neglected, 
the crown must from the prevalent superstition of the people be in danger of falling into entire subordination under the metre the union of the civil and ecclesiastical power serves extremely in every civilized government to the maintenance of peace and order and prevents those mutual encroachments which as there can be no ultimate judge between them are often attended with the most dangerous consequences whether the supreme magistrate who unites these powers receives the appellation of prince or prelate is not material the superior weight which temporal interests commonly bear in the apprehension of men above spiritual renders the civil part of his character most prevalent and in time prevents those gross impostures and bigoted persecutions which in all false religions are the chief foundation of clerical authority but during the progress of ecclesiastical usurpations the state by the resistance of the civil magistrate is naturally thrown into convulsions and it behooves the prince both for his own interest and for that of the public to provide in time sufficient barriers against so dangerous and insidious a rival this precaution had hitherto been much neglected in england as well as in other catholic countries and affairs at last seemed to have come to a dangerous crisis a sovereign of the greatest abilities was now on the throne a prelate of the most inflexible and intrepid character was possessed of the primacy the contending powers appeared to be armed with their full force and it was natural to expect some extraordinary event to result from their conflict among their other inventions to obtain money the clergy had inculcated the necessity of penance as an atonement for sin and having again introduced the practice of paying them large sums as a commutation or species of atonement for the remission of those penances the sins of the people by these means had become a revenue to the priests and the king computed that by this invention alone they levied more money upon his subjects than flowed by all the funds and taxes into the royal exchequer that he might ease the people of so heavy and arbitrary an imposition henry required that a civil officer of his appointment should be present in all ecclesiastical courts and should for the future give his consent to every composition which was made with sinners for their spiritual offences the ecclesiastics in that age had renounced all immediate subordination to the magistrate they openly pretended to an exemptior in criminal accusations from a trial before courts of justice and were gradually introducing a like exemption in civil causes spiritual penalties alone could be afflicted on their offences and as the clergy had extremely multiplied in england and many of them were consequently of very low characters crimes of the deepest dye murders robberies adulteries rapes were daily committed with impunity by the ecclesiastics it had been found for instance on inquiry that no less than a hundred murders had since the king's accession been perpetrated by men of that profession who had never been called to account for these offences and holy orders were become a full protection for all enormities a clerk in worcestershire having debauched a gentleman's daughter had at this time proceeded to murder the father and the general indignation against this crime moved the king to attempt the remedy of an abuse which was become so palpable and to require that the clerk should be delivered up and receive condign punishment from the magistrate becket insisted on the privileges of the church confined the criminal in the bishop's prison lest he should be seized by the king's officers maintained that no greater punishment could be inflicted on him than degradation 
and when the king demanded that immediately after he was degraded he should be tried for the civil power, the primate asserted that it was iniquitous to try a man twice upon the same accusation, and for the same offence. Henry, laying hold of so plausible a pretense, resolved to push the clergy with regard to all their privileges, which they had raised to an enormous height, and to determine at once those controversies which daily multiplied between the civil and the ecclesiastical jurisdictions. He summoned an assembly of all the prelates in England, and he put them to this concise and decisive question, whether or not they were willing to submit to the ancient laws and customs of the kingdom. The bishops unanimously replied that they were willing, saving their own order, a device by which they thought to elude the present urgency of the king's demand, yet reserved to themselves on a favorable opportunity the power of resuming all their pretensions. The king was sensible of this artifice, and was provoked to the highest indignation. He left the assembly with visible marks of his displeasure. He required the primate instantly to surrender the honors and castles of Eye and Berkham. The bishops were terrified, and expected still further effects of his resentment. Becket alone was inflexible, and nothing but the interposition of the Pope's legate and almoner, Philip, who dreaded a breach with so powerful a prince at so unreasonable a juncture, could have prevailed on him to retract the saving clause, and give a general and absolute promise of observing the ancient customs. But Henry was not content with the declaration in these general terms. He resolved, ere it was too late, to define expressly those customs with which he required compliance, and to put a stop to clerical usurpations before they were fully consolidated and could plead antiquity, as they already did a sacred authority, in their favor. The claims of the church were open and visible. After a gradual and insensible progress during many centuries, the mask had at last been taken off, and several ecclesiastical councils, by their canons, which were pretended to be irrevocable and infallible, had positively defined those privileges and immunities which gave such general offence, and appeared so dangerous to the civil magistrate. Henry, therefore, deemed it necessary to define with the same precision the limits of the civil power, to oppose his legate customs to their defined ordinances, to determine the exact boundaries of the rival jurisdictions, and for this purpose he summoned a general council of the nobility and prelates at Clarendon, to whom he submitted this great and important question. The barons were all gained to the king's party, either by the reasons which he urged or by his superior authority. The bishops were overawed by the general combination against them, and the following laws, commonly called the Constitutions of Clarendon, were voted without opposition by this assembly. It was enacted that all suits concerning the advowed son and presentation of churches should be determined in the civil courts, that the churches belonging to the king's fee should not be granted in perpetuity without his consent, that clerks accused of any crime should be tried in the civil courts, that no person, particularly no clergyman of any rank, should depart the kingdom without the king's license that excommunicated persons should not be bound to give security for continuing in their present place of abode, that laics should not be accused in spiritual courts, except by legal and reputable promoters and witnesses, that no chief tenant of the crown should be excommunicated, nor his lands be put under an interdict, except with the king's consent, 
that all appeals in spiritual causes should be carried from the archdeacon to the bishop from the bishop to the primate from him to the king and should be carried no farther without the king's consent that if any lawsuit arose between a layman and a clergyman concerning a tenant and it be disputed whether the land be a lay or an ecclesiastical fee it should first be determined by the verdict of twelve lawful men to what class it belonged and if it be found to be a lay fee the cause should finally be determined in the civil courts that no inhabitant in domain should be excommunicated for non-appearance in a spiritual court till the chief officers of the place where he resides be consulted that he may compel him by the civil authority to give satisfaction to the church that the archbishops bishops and other spiritual dignities should be regarded as barons of the realm should possess the privileges and be subject to the burdens belonging to that rank and should be bound to attend the king in his great councils and assist at all trials till the sentence either of death or loss of members be given against the criminal that the revenue of vacancies should belong to the king the chapter or such of them as he pleases to summon should sit in the king's chapel till they made the new election with his consent and that the bishop-elect should do homage to the crown that if any baron or tenant in capite should refuse to submit to these spiritual courts the king should employ his authority in obliging him to make such submissions if any of them throw off his allegiance to the king the prelates should assist the king with their censures in reducing him that goods forfeited to the king should not be protected in churches or churchyards that the clergy should no longer pretend to the right of enforcing payment of debts contracted by oath or promise but should leave these lawsuits equally with others to the determination of the civil courts and that the son of the lanes should not be ordained clerks without the consent of their lord end of section thirty seven recording by s t macduff